Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30, and, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, it seems like ages since he's been in the studio, but we actually have Stephen Ryan from Dixoni Rare Plants back. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, everybody out there. Yes, it has been a little while. It has. I, I had to step back from the last time I was supposed to be in here because I was up in Beechworth. Which, That's right. Which was gorgeous. I had a really lovely time up in Beechworth and Stanley. And actually, at some stage, I'd like to talk about Stanley this morning. There's something quite interesting about Stanley that I think people could take on board and think about. Um, yeah, so it has been a little while. And um, as of Tuesday, I'm off again for a while. So uh, I'm going walking in Italy. So there you go. Um, I'm going to come back uh, holier than thou because I'm doing <laughs> half of the walk of St. Francis and walking from Florence to Assisi. Right. So country villages, wildflowers, could be pretty good. It's the best way to see the country, you well, realise. I mean, we won't see all that much of Italy. No, no, um, no. But we'll, what we do see will be reasonably intensive and, and, and at a nice leisurely pace. Hey, I hate to tell you, but mm. um, it means you're going to have to go back. Well, undoubtedly. But that just means that, you know, I'll, I'll get a taste for it. And yes, and we will have to go back. And who knows, I might start leading tours there next to you can <laughs> say. Um, so, yes, this will be our, our little sort of putting our foot in the water in, in Italy so to speak because yep. so, uh, although we've spent a day or two in Rome that's it and that was sort of on a stopover when we were going on to London so I really haven't spent any time in Italy so this will be good I'm th- looking forward to it so. and out in the countryside I mean Rome gives you a completely different oh. idea of Italy compared mm. to out in the countryside yeah, you're more likely to get pickpocketed by gypsies there you know, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. which happened to me and uh, and and Full of tourists yeah. these days, very, very busy, packed, oh, yeah. you know. Yes. So, um, Oh, actually, we had a very funny experience speaking of tourists in Rome. Uh, Craig and I were standing outside the Colosseum uh, and it was raining and it was awful. It was cold. It was a right. dreadful day. I think it was in April. Um, and an American tourist came up to us and said, what is there to do around here? <laughs> And Craig and I were completely gobsmacked for a second. You, you don't, well, how do you respond to a question like that? And so Craig said, oh, there's, well, there's the Colosseum. And this woman then turned around and said, what's that, some sort of museum? <laughs> and, you know, so she wasn't a great advert for the uh, American tourist, I have to say. <laughs> Imagine going to Rome and not knowing what the Colosseum is. Oh, dearie me. Some and even walking see, there. Yeah, and some people travel like that, though. They travel around the world not really being aware of where they're going or what they're doing. I know. I think they stick pins in maps and off they go. I know. So, yeah, if I'm going to go somewhere, well, I read the guidebooks and I, you know, do a bit of study and well, learn about the Well, most people do, don't they? Well, you'd they? think so, but there's thought. lots that don't. I mean, I remember on my very first trip to Madagascar, there was, a, again, it's probably unfair to target Americans, but uh, there was a group of American tourists going to Madagascar as well, and they were, we were all in this hotel at the airport at Joburg, uh, waiting for our flight the next day. And the tour guide that was with them, there was about seven or eight of them, was explaining what a lima was. And they had no idea. You know, and they were going to Madagascar. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it's, it intrigues me that people can travel like that. But anyhow, enough of that. <laughs> well, I guess they knew a lot more about lemurs by the time they left. Well, I would imagine they did, yes. yes. But, yeah, they didn't know what they were when they were arriving there, though. Okay. And, you, know, I, you know, they were being told it's some sort of monkey. You know, that was the sort of explanation. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've heard that before too, yeah. which you, you sort of cringe at. Oh, anyway. you do. Some some tourists, they shouldn't leave home. No. <laughs> Still, they are getting broadened. Well, well one hopes. Uh, yes. Although you wonder about some of them, whether they actually get anything out of what they've done. But, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to, to this. I mean, walking 
quietly on country lanes and tracks and things no, between village and village will be good. And we'll have to deal with all that Italian food and wine. And Are you getting to any gardens before no, you head off on the walk? Uh, well, we're going to spend uh, two or three days in Florence, so we're going to spend day, uh, time there. So we'll have a look around and see what we can find when we're actually in Florence. But, no, we won't have time to go off what we're doing no. um, because we've got our accommodation and everything booked ahead. Yep. And, um, we're doing it in the civilised manner. We're not carrying our luggage on our back. Oh. Um, uh, and I was telling Penny before, apparently the technical term for somebody who does that is a slack packer. <laughs> which <laughs> I, I like that. I love it. I think it's adorable. <laughs> it's I'm great very name. happy to be a slack packer. I think at my age carrying 40 kilos in a pack on my back is just not on. Yes. So, yeah, so we'll just be carrying our day packs and our accommodation is booked at each village that we're stopping at. Um, That's a civilised way to do yeah, it. And we can just leisurely walk. Yeah. I, I just... You get a hot shower at the end of each day. Yeah, exactly. That's nice. Yeah, I wonder if I can get a massage as well. Yeah. Oh, well, anyhow, we'll work that out when we get there. Yeah, so that's what it's all about. Okay. So on Tuesday we're off. I'll be back on deck here, I think, on the 12th of... Yeah, we've got fingers crossed you will be on deck on the Well, 12th. I'm hoping I will be. I mean, you know, unless I'm uh, held up somewhere or uh, whatever, I will be back on air here on the 12th. So, okay. Yeah. Um, and I'll be full of stories of daring do, possibly. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and we have to officially say good morning to Penny Woodward. Hi, Penny. Hi, Pam. Hi, listeners. <clears throat> it's nice to be here again. And I'm sorry I forgot last time. <laughs> Uh, the main the thing was time. Stephen and I were yeah. worried about you and yeah. all's well. Yes. Yes, because it's not like you at all. No, no, I know. Yeah. I know. Yes, I the organised lady that we know. Just that we know. It just yeah. wasn't organised. <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I was trying to work out actually how long I've been doing coming into 3CR because oh, I know I had a bit of a break in the middle at a certain point. And, um, but it must be a pretty long time and I think that's the first time. Yes, it is. So all is forgiven. I did did it once. I remember Pam ringing me at home. And you were in bed. And I was still in bed. And I don't know how I managed that. I think I just didn't set the alarm or whatever. Um, And I still got down here. I was late for the program, but I still got here for that program. I said, I'll be down. I'll be down. So I got dressed and Zoomed down here. So uh, not sure how many speed limits I broke on the way down, but anyhow. Okay, uh, so you've each done it once. That's it. Yeah, all right. That's that's, that's your once and only. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Penny, what? What's happening with you at the moment? Oh, well, like reveling, reveling, reveling in the rain. Yes. I think mm. that's what the way we've all responded. I, You know, as I said last time I was in, it was, it's been the driest summer that I've ever seen. And, and even though we've had, I think, probably 40 millimetres over the last two or three weeks, um, it's still really dry about, oh, you know, go down, down. About, go down about six centimetres and yep. there's nothing. Yeah, yep. you know, yeah I was, I was digging, planting. digging some holes yeah. yesterday. Yeah, yeah, I was doing exactly yeah. the same thing last yeah. night. I was getting a few plants, or not last night, the uh, night before, a few plants into the ground that have been sitting in pots around the yep. garden, thinking if I don't get these in before I go away, yep. they're going to be sitting there. And if we don't yep. get enough rain, we could have problems. So I thought, oh, well, I'll plant them. Yep. And I started digging holes to put these things in. And, yes, it was surprising how dry everything oh, still yes. is underneath. Yeah, especially if you round trees. Oh, yeah. At all, so anywhere around trees, any moisture has just disappeared. You know, it just hasn't topped mm. the soil up at all. Yep. So, yeah, it, more that's please. Disappointing, but yes, we do need definitely more, more. Yeah. lots more. And yeah. and and the poor old folks out in you know regional Victoria are really mm. suffering. Mm. I know they've had a very hard time up around Castlemaine. Yeah, mm. you know, yeah. some parts have been drier than others. I was talking to my sister who um, they have some land just out of Violet Town. 
and um, they've had so much rain that their whole their dam is overflowing. All their tanks are full. Really, um, really, already. Yeah. So wow. They must have, you know, some of these rainstorms that have been going across are, are really intense mm. cells. So one of those cells must have gone mm. through. Well, and, one of my clients really from Balato over near Dalesford was talking to me yesterday and said over the last rain incident they got well over a hundred mils mm. um, mm. just in a day or so. Yeah. The one thing I am rejoicing about is that dear old Tassie have had they've a had bit. some. And yeah. they've, I mean, they haven't. I mean, their hydroelectricity yeah. commission has yeah. just gone defunct because of the. Yep. I mean, they've had no water in their mm. dams. It's unbelievable mm. for Tassie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One Ugh. of the one of the things um, we found in the garlic industry is that garlic has gone into the ground much later because right. they re- rely on having some moisture in the ground to plant because yes. most of them aren't keyed up to water until spring mm. until the weather heats up. Then, so they mm. plant into already moist soil. So yeah, that's been it's been um, quite delayed. Um, so they've really only planted in the last two or three weeks, mm-hmm. which usually it would have been a month mm-hmm. earlier. The other thing that uh, I have to say absolutely intrigues me at the moment is looking at the weather maps. Mm. They are so different from what we were seeing, you know, just a few years ago. The whole pattern of the weather has mm. completely changed. Lots more northerlies. Mm. Lots more northerlies. Mm. And we haven't had a frost. No. Really. At all. No, no, neither have I. Yeah. At Macedon, that's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I'm still picking French beans. Yeah. yeah. The nights are still balmy almost. Yeah. Yeah, it mm. is. It's ridiculous. I've, but uh, then we had snow mm. recently. So, you know, there's been some cool weather yeah. around up in the But, high, yes, I just can't believe we've gone right through autumn without one frost. Yep. Mm. And, you know, everything that should have been frosted off is still there. And lots of autumn colouring trees just didn't colour terribly well. Yeah. My maples sort of, haven't coloured at all. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've still got things that are grass green that should have um, shed weeks ago. My plum flowered again, <laughs> and it actually formed fruit as well. No, there are three, <laughs> the poor three little plums on it. Oh, goodness <laughs> Which I thought me. was hysterical. Yeah, 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 no, it is. It's very strange weather. Yeah, so well, you, I've, I've had another crop of tomatoes on one of my tomato okay, plants, well, and they're sitting there. No, but they're not, they're not going oh, to turn gonna red. They're yeah. not going to ripen. But Yeah, well, an old... Um, Greek friend of mine, he harvests his green tomatoes and takes them into the garage and hangs them up and he reckons they'll ripen in there. So I think mine are too little. I'm not going to bother. Okay. <laughs> and the poor old eggplants have reflowered. Yeah. 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 My eggplant's still growing. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. It's truly madness. Oh, dear. I must get on to some community announcements. Um, first up, next Tuesday is the next uh, talk uh, being run by Friends of Burnley Gardens. Now, um, the speaker will be Ian Winstone, and um, would you believe the title of his talk is Is Drainage Sexy? Well, <laughs> I, I could say all sorts of things that would be inappropriate even at this hour of the morning. Or you could over just that say one. no. Yeah, you could say no. But, yes, I had sort of thoughts of, no, we won't go there. Uh, <laughs> yes, okay. Anyway, Ian's a Burnley graduate. He's worked in just about every sector in the industry, including viticulture, conservation and natural resources, nursery production and arboriculture for over 45 years and is still teaching. And his main area of expertise is in landscape design and construction. Now, he's obviously going to be talking about um, drainage in the garden. Uh, As I said, the meeting is coming up next Tuesday, the 17th of May, it's in room 10 in the main building. You follow the signs. Um, it's at Burnley Campus, 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond. Time is 7 o'clock for drinks and nibbles, 7.30 for the talk. Cost for members is $5. For non-members is $15. 
Bookings, of course, are essential, particularly for the nibbles, if you want some. Uh, you can phone 9035 6861 or email a.smith at Now, also uh, coming up uh, again as part of the Friends of Burnley Gardens, uh, their following um, meeting is actually uh, a workshop and it's uh, all about creating a bee hotel. Now, this is with Lee Scott. The date is Saturday the 28th of May, again at Burnley College. It runs from 10am through to 12.30. Cost for this one is $50 for members, $55 for non-members. Now, it includes the materials for the hotel, which is made out of timber. What you do need to bring is materials to decorate the bee rooms. Now, they're filled with a range of garden materials cut to size, varying in diameter from 2 to 10 millimetres, such as bamboo, hollow sticks or pieces of timber with holes drilled into it. And you also need to bring secateurs. Bookings, again, of course, are essential. Again, that number, 9035-6815. Or in this case, um, you can email friends.burnley at gmail.com. And uh, again, parking is available in the boulevard. Also coming up Saturday the 28th of May, and I've been mentioning this for the last couple of weeks, um, under the auspices of Open Gardens Victoria, they're having uh, a couple of workshops all about compost. Uh, Now, these are taking place down in East Geelong at 478 Ryrie Street in East Geelong. And as I said, there's two sessions. The first one is 9.30 till 12. The second one is 1.30 till 4. The cost is $30. That includes morning or afternoon tea and composting notes. Now, to, uh, to book... You can go online to opengardensvictoria.org.au and follow the prompts and book online for that one. And just finally, um, a reminder that uh, there's going to be a wonderful one-day workshop coming up um, on Saturday the 4th of June. This is being run by Friends of Cranbourne and it's all about fabulous fungi. Now, uh, the workshops will take place at the Australian Garden Auditorium, which, of course, is down at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria Cranbourne Gardens. And uh, they've got some wonderful speakers there on the day. Dr Tom May, who's a senior mycologist from Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria. Dr Nushka Rita, who's an orchid conservationist and botanist from Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria as well. Jeff Lay from the Field Naturalist Club of Victoria, Dr Simone Lau-Woff, an expert on lichens, and also uh, the friends John Thompson's. Now, topics covered will be an overview of fungi, orchid fungi relationships, fungi of Victoria, lichens and a cultural history of fungi, and these talks will be followed by a question and answer session with the panel of experts before taking a walk around Cranbourne bushland to forage for some fascinating fungi. Does that mean they all get to go to get a fungi to go out with? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> it's Sunday, folks. Forgive yeah. <laughs> All right. Cost is members $60. Non-members is $75. Uh, students are $30. And uh, 
you can go again to the Royal Botanic Gardens website, which is rbd.vic.gov.au, and uh, go to the Cranbourne site, and all of that will come up for booking forms. Or if you'd like more information, you can phone Amy. Her number is 0423-513-281. Okay, well, it's time we invited our listeners to join us. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Penny, let's start off the program by um, you telling us a bit about the new... Well, we're not a, meant to officially call them mooks, are we? No, we're but not. We, we, They're essential guides. I, I can't help guides. it. It's, mook is such a great it's a name. Good name isn't it? It's a yes. perfect name. So, anyway. what we're talking about are these publications that the ABC Organic Gardener does um, a, 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 that are a compilation of articles from the magazine plus some specially commissioned articles on a specific topic. And this is number 12. Um, so the other previous ones have covered everything from garden to table. So it's all about harvesting and cooking to vegetables. And there's one, a really good one on herbs and spices. Chooks. And, uh, chooks, two chook ones, a permaculture one. So a whole diversity. And this one, which is one I've been urging them to do for ages, is all about natural solutions. So it's all about organic solutions to pest problems. And one of the things that I'm very excited about is that Dennis Crawford and Francis Michaels are the two main writers about the pests and diseases. So, um, And they have such a depth of knowledge between them um, on these subjects. So there's terrific photographs from Dennis right through the whole mm. thing. Um, really good up-to-date knowledge from Francis. Francis is, is um, um, Green Harvest which has been working with, um, you know, pest solutions for decades. Yes. And um, so she knows what the most recent research is. So there's all sorts of really good information in here. I I was lucky enough to get a little bit to write about, so I wrote (laughs) about nutrient deficiencies and um, found that it was really hard to find photographs and I didn't have good photographs. So I got Margaret Holloway, who's one of the illustrators from the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. Oh. She did the illustrations for me for, okay. the, for the individual leaves to show what the leaves look like um, when, when they're nutrient, nutrient deficient, deficient yep. in one of the nutrients. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think it's the best of all their um, mooks. And uh, <laughs> the, the really exciting thing is that it's only ten ninety five. You know, so the when you infa- compare that the to the average book, yeah, that you have to buy the information that. that is available in mm. this for ten ninety five, I just think is is incredible. And so, the production on these essential guides is always fantastic. Loads of coloured photos, yeah. um, really good in depth knowledge on a specific subject, which yeah. is what I like. And and Simon, um, who is the editor for these, it's not it's not Steve. He has a really good. Um, ability to pick a photo that really draws you in. So, okay. you know, I think it, it's it's a pleasure to use as well. Um, and one of one of the things that I love about it is that it's my nectarines and it's actually my hand <laughs> on the front cover. Oh, so, you've become a hand model. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So it, it, after having, you know, taken photographs and forced people to be hand models for me for years, <laughs> I spent this day in the garden, you know, tr- taking – we do so many photos to just get one photo for the cover – and we'd spent Kirsten Bresciani, who's a fabulous photographer. She um, turned up at my garden at seven o'clock in the morning because the lights always really yeah. better. In the morning yes, and 
we did this whole range of great photos um, completely to what they had asked us to do, which was to be pulling a net off ripe fruit. And, you know, that was the, the brief. And then we were sending them up to ABC headquarters and, and suddenly one person said, that's not what we wanted. Oh. And this was after sort of five hours of taking oh. photographs. Yeah. And they wanted they wanted um, this particular person said that they wanted um, nice old jars or containers with different pest solutions in the jars. And and I just went, and this was you know one o'clock after we'd been doing it for five hours, <laughs> and was then talking to other people, um, the designer and stuff. They just said, look, if you could do something that would be really helpful. So we we got. Um, I went inside and I keep all my all my flour and things in these lovely old fashioned jars. So you can see there's a couple of them actually on the front cover. I tipped out all my condiments into bowls oh. in the kitchen <laughs> and went out and grabbed molasses and some pest oh. oil and, oh, and we filled all this up and took a photograph of them with a basket of nectarines on a table in front of the thing. And there and it's it, there's a little bit of it on the front cover and on one of the pages there is actually a photo of it. But I just thought readers, listeners might like to know that the story behind some of these photos <laughs> sometimes. I hope you wash so the jars well I before did. you put I the condiments back. very carefully. <laughs> but now every time I go to grab my jar of flour or something it's the like molasses that, jar. I think, yes, then that's, the, that's the one that I had the copper hydroxide in. Oh, <laughs> uh, goodness. Oh, dear. So, that's, yes. so that was a lot of fun. But, oh. look, I think it's a really good publication and, and you know, I... My only regret with it is that it'll probably undermine sales of my book on pest repellent plants. But, you know, that's life, isn't it? But well, I don't know about that because because um, it could also give people a taste and they want more in-depth information. Well, I, I suppose that's true. Yes, yeah. so actually one yeah. could lead to the other. Yeah. 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 But anyway, look, I would I would highly recommend this for people who want to come up with good organic solutions to pest problems mm. in their gardens. Mm. I think it's a terrific mm. book. Yep. Fabulous. Excellent. Now, during the week, um, I should say that I had a listener email me a couple of photos. Oh, yes, the pictures. Um, yes. Uh, a, it was about a bush. We'd been talking about um, plant, a particular plant um, that had um, purple berries on it last mm. week on air. And this listener rang in to say, oh, I think that might be the one. But no, I've looked it up quickly online and no, it's not the one I'm trying to ID that's outside the uh, the Brighton Library. And uh, so she's emailed me a couple of photos, which I've passed yep. across to Stephen. And Stephen, I'm happy to say you can give her a good ID. Yes, yes. It's definitely a Mahonia. Uh, which are in the same group of plants as the Berberus bushes. Uh, in fact, there's a good chance Mahonies could end up being Berberuses in due course uh, if the botanists and taxonomists have their way. Um, and it looks from the photo like it's um, uh, Mahonia aquifolium. Um, uh, that's about as close as I can come. It's If it's not aquifolium, it's one of the closely related ones. So, And it's most likely to be that one because, in fact, it's the most regularly grown of all the Mahonias. Mm. So, yeah, so Mahonia aquifolium, they get little yellow flowers on them um, uh, before the berries, and the berries sit on the plant for ages. uh, And they were very popular in England way back in the sort of late 1800s. They planted them all over the place as pheasant food. Okay. Uh, on you know. So on are the, the berries estate. edible? Uh, not, well, I don't think they're particularly edible for us, but okay. birds seem to enjoy them, um, and so they did. In fact, uh, 
it was one of the Mahonies. It might even be this one that was getting huge prices when it first came in from North America uh, in England. Uh, on the grand estates where they wanted to mm. plant it out for, for their pheasant runs and things like that. So uh, I think it was getting, you know, sort of like a man's wage for the year per plant and all that mm. sort of thing when they first released it. Um, really and bad then the prices, the Yeah, and then the prices <laughs> slowly went down as the plant became more readily available and then you could buy it by the hundred and all that sort of stuff. So, yep. uh, yeah, so the Mahonias are useful shrubs, particularly, particularly good in the shade. This one looks like it's out in full sun, so its foliage has been somewhat bleached yes, by the sun. Yes. Uh, they do do better in the shade. so And I think they're great shrubs, the Mahonias. There's a, a whole range of them from comparatively small suckering shrubs like this one uh, up to quite tall sort of upright shrubs uh, that can get up to three or four metres tall. That's produced a huge number of berries. It has got a huge crop of berries on it. I have to say, I don't think it's I've laden. seen one with that no, many I haven't berries either. on it. Um, of course, that's often due to stress because things go, oh, God, I'm not having a great time here. And so I'm, I'm baking in the sun and, yeah. yeah, I might die. So come yeah. on, let's get <laughs> Yeah, let's get things happening here. So yep. it could be a little bit like that. But yep. um, uh, it is a very pretty berry and they seem to sit on the plants for ages. And, uh, yeah, and I think they're a useful group of shrubs. Mm. So Mahonia aquifolium. So there we go. Fantastic. Okay, we'll go to our first caller and uh, we have Thelma online from Lee and Gatha. Good morning, Thelma. Oh, good morning, panel. Um, I, I have been putting this job off because I've been really quite worried about it. I have to repot my my pine. Yeah. It's in a, a pot that's probably about two foot across diameter mm. and it's probably about eight years old and it needs doing. And yeah. I'm... As I say, I've been putting off doing it. Well, you shouldn't put off doing it if, uh, from the point of view of being scared to repot the Woolamai because they'll repot without any real problems. They're a surprisingly hardy conifer, actually. So, uh, And they don't mind being a bit root-bound, I have to say. The only reason I would pop one on is if it was getting too top-heavy and it kept toppling over. That, that's what's happened. Yeah, well, it's, if it's doing that, then it needs repotting. Yes. Uh, and you'll need to go up you know, into a pot that's at least two or three inches in diameter, bigger than the existing one. Right. You could yep. go up a little bit more if you wanted. I'd use a good quality potting mix, um, and I'd use a little bit of one of the slow-release fertilisers, like an Osmocote or something like that, which will keep it gently fed for about 12 months. So when I take it out of the pot, mm. should I tease the roots or cut them back? Or... No, I wouldn't cut the roots. Um I might rub my hands around the bottom of the root ball just to loosen things up yep. a wee bit. But yep. apart from that, you, you'll you find in most modern potting mixes, the roots will be drawn out into the next thing again. Okay. Uh, yep. And teasing of root systems isn't quite as vital as it perhaps once was in the old-fashioned soil-based potting mixes. Okay, yep. So, yeah, so just sort of tease around at the bottom of the root ball and repot it. And uh, don't be frightened. And, yeah, don't be frightened of it. Perhaps give it one of the seaweed products just to settle it in yep. and um, uh, keep it somewhere where it's not going to get blown about whilst it's resettling in the new pot too so it doesn't sort of wobble around in the pot. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much. Now, there are just two things. that One is you're talking about the lack of water. Now, we're South Gippsland and we've had no rain down here and our gardens and, and the lawns, everything have just sort of, really really in total stress so like we always say if south gippsland haven't had rain the rest of the country have been in lots of trouble as yeah, well you're right because you yeah. normally get the rain down there oh, if anybody does yes. always always mm. and out of this i'd like to say and it may be because of the weather conditions one of my agaves went a little bit crazy and it started to grow this strange thing in the center 
And now all of a sudden I've got a four to five foot stem, which my son has called a periscope, but it's all going to be in flower. Yeah, yes. And yeah. I, in all the times that I have seen agaves, I've never seen it happen until I was over, because I didn't know what was happening at the start. And when we were over at Geraldton, um, I knocked on this fellow's door because I couldn't believe what I was looking at, these agaves, and his were about 10 or 12 feet long. Yeah, yeah some of them send up yeah, huge, huge long yes, flower spikes. Yeah, very dramatic. Yeah. yeah, and like all of a sudden, I've got this four to five foot one in my pot that is, yeah, of course the agave itself is dying, but it's got all these little babies Yeah, growing. most of them will produce pups around them, yeah, which will carry on the next generation. They're all growing up the mm. stem like, like Billio, but I've got this great big periscope mm. as, a, as a flower. And well, just enjoy it. I am. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's quite amazed that it's that it's happened. So would it, do you think it would be the weather conditions? Oh, look, with agaves it could be, but it could also just be that it was due. It's natural cycle. Yeah, it just yeah. could be part of its natural cycle. It was just due to flower at some stage or another. I mean, some of them they call them century plants because yeah. purportedly they don't flower for a century, which is nonsense. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, it could just have been at a point in its life where it was just due to flower. Oh, I'm amazing. Yep. Okay, then. Thank you for your help, and I'll, I'll go out and address my problem. Good on you. <laughs> See you Bye. later. Bye. Um, Pam, can I just go back to the the um, MOOC for a second? Yeah. If people want copies, I didn't say this, you can get them through the Organic Gardener or the ABC website or newsagents. Okay. So not bookshops. No. So newsagents. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Newsagents. Okay. And they're out now? Yes, absolutely. Yep. Yep. All right, yeah. terrific. Right, so a trip into the local news agents. Yeah, and yeah. Then it's uh... called Natural Solutions is what you're looking for. But although a lot of the news agents will just think it's a, the magazine, there's a lot of confusion between the essential guides mm. and the magazine. So, so yeah. I presume it'll probably be on a shelf yeah. near other magazines. Yeah, but it's got these beautiful nectarines on the cover, so you'll <laughs> recognise it. Which were obviously delicious when they you They were. Them. We, <laughs> we had so many nectarines. Uh. Okay, Stephen, let's um, – oh, before we do that, we have had a query uh, on the outside line. Apparently a couple of weeks ago you mentioned a dwarf or small or a butylus. A butylon. Yeah. Um. They want to know what it was. Uh, well, I don't remember, remember which one. Um, there are quite a number of smaller butylins. There are a, a group of hybrid ones that are much more compact and, and, and tight. Uh, things like uh, there's one called Halo, which just makes a nice little bush about um, uh, a metre or so each way. Um, there's also a variegated leaf one called Souvenir de Bon, which is a very old-fashioned one with white, very broad white variegation around the edge of the leaf and it only gets to about a metre or so in height although it can actually end up substantially wider um, and then there's the little flowered ones, uh, the Brazilian one called, uh, unfortunately a butylin megapotamicum um, and megapotamicum gets little red calyxes with yellow petals sticking out the bottom and it's actually a sprawling plant so you'd, uh, you'd train that up as an espalier or grow it up a pillar or or what have you so you could you'd use it as a climber really in right. a sense. Yep. And if you didn't train it up, you'd end up with a mound on the ground about a metre high and about three metres wide. Okay. So, so they're the main smaller abutilins. So can you just repeat those three names? All right. So abutilin megapotamicum, uh, which is fairly phonetic, so you should be able to work out megapotamicum. Um, uh, abutilin halo, which is one of the dwarf new hybrids, and the old-fashioned variegated one called souvenir de bon. 
B-O-N, Souvenir de Bonn. And they're really good, smaller growing abutilins. And as we all know, abutilins are great bird attracting plants. The birds love the nectar out of them. And as Penny taught us not that long ago, a lot of them you can eat the petals of. (laughs) Indeed. So there you go. And I did try it too. I've got Bull de Neige, that white one that was on the cover of the magazine growing in the garden at home. So I promptly went home and pulled off some petals and tried them. And they actually do have a flavour. Yeah. Which and, is, a, and a texture yeah, too, yeah, which is nice because so often there's no texture when you yes, put I mean, yeah. flowers look fantastic. And yeah, sometimes but they're sort of just dressing. Right. There's yes. nothing really yeah. about them. I mean, there's no, no substance no substance to mm. them at all. But the abutilin flowers, yeah. yes, I was actually quite impressed. Good. So there you go. Good. So Excellent. we all learn something every day. It's we fantastic. Do. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, now let's, uh, right. let's have a chat. Now, I bought in an oak leaf hydrangea. Um, and the reason I bought it in was that I'm being uh, inundated with different cultivars lately. I mean, once upon a time, you'd get just straight hydrangea quercifolia. Yes. And then there was a smaller version that came along called Sykes Dwarf, which was quite a nice little compact one, which was quite good. And then a double flower one arrived uh, called Snowflake, which is lovely with these sort of almost like little double formal white camellias mm. uh, as the individual flowers. Mm. Okay. And those who don't know the oak-leafed hydrangeas, they have white flowers and, they, and they're in long panicle heads. They're not in round flat heads like the classical hydrangea. And, of course, they're called oak-leafed hydrangeas because they have a lovely, well, oak leaf, really, yeah, yeah. sort of like a pin oak type yeah. leaf not like an English oak type leaf and they get fantastic colours on them in the autumn winter in the foliage if they're exposed enough to the cool and, and light and so yeah so along came Snowflake and I got terribly excited and then this one came along comparatively recently called Snow Queen and she has very upright white heads mm. on her so she, you've got these lovely okay. big sort of tall upright heads on it and it's about a two metre by two metre shrub when it's fully grown, so it can get to quite a reasonable size. Um, And then quite recently, and I nearly grabbed one of them as well, but I thought, well, they all look much the same on radio. Um, uh, A new one's come along called Ruby Slippers, which is another compact comparatively dwarf one uh, with smaller white heads that, as long as they don't burn in the summer, get quite a lot of pink in the flowers as Mm. they age. Ah. Uh, And Ruby Slippers foliage, standing next to Snow Queen at the nursery yesterday, was intensely burgundy. And they were both being mm. grown in the same mm. basic environment. Yep. So I think Ruby Slipper, which I haven't been able to find out terribly much about, it's not in the English plant finder. Mm. It must be a comparatively new cultivar. Mm. It's probably a PBR or something on it. I don't know. Flemings have released it. Uh, and I just saw it on their list and I thought, oh, I'll order some of those and see what they're like. Mm. Um, and lo and behold, it arrived and I was really impressed. It's a lovely hydrangea. Um, and the other good thing about the oak leaf hydrangeas is they're not as thirsty as your normal garden hydrangeas, so they don't need to be watered as heavily. Mm. And in fact, if you want to kill one, you can drown them. Okay. Uh, they don't like to be overwatered. Um, and they're also, they like a little bit more light than your normal garden hydrangea and the light will bring up the colours in the foliage Mm. in the winter. They're basically evergreen. They'll drop some foliage in the winter, but those burgundy leaves will go right through the winter. So as a garden shrub, it really pays its way because you've got the heads of white flowers through the summer Mm. and they're on it for quite a long time. Uh, And then you've got this wonderful sort of burgundies and red leaves that will carry on right through the winter. Uh, so for you know, sort of eight or nine months of the mm. year, you've got colour, and for the short time that the foliage is green in the spring before the flowers come, it's heavily veined, texturally interesting. So the foliage is lovely all year round, mm. and I just think the oak leaf hydrangeas, particularly seeing as there's so many new cultivars coming along, uh, are something we should revisit. I mean, there's even a gold leafed one out there, although I've 
bought it for a while and found it rather weak in constitution, a bit hard to keep going, uh, called Little Honey, which had a golden yellow leaf during the summer mm. and then still coloured in the winter um, and was comparatively dwarf, but I didn't find an easy cultivar to grow. Okay. So, um, yeah, so the oak-leafed hydrangeas, there's one of those plants that I think we should all start to revisit and have a look at because mm. I, I just think they're lovely, lovely shrubs. Steve, was the original oak leaf a bit of a climber? No. No, no but the... it was. it's a sort of a suckery shrub um, with a rather lax sort of habit to it, but it wasn't a climby type okay. plant. Um, but most of the newer cultivars seem to be more compact and yep. bushy, even if they're bigger growing ones like mm. the original was. Um, and their flower heads tend to be much more um, intense in flowers because as people possibly know there are fertile and sterile flowers within the head of a hydrangea Mm. and the sterile flowers are the ones with the big petally bracts in them and the fertile flowers are the little beady ones in the middle and so a lot of the new cultivars coming along have uh, a higher proportion of sterile flowers to Mm. the head so they're they're more bulkier looking flower heads Mm. Um, and so yeah there's been some remarkable improvements uh, Mm. in this group of hydrangeas that I thought was one of those species that showed almost no genetic variation. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. But there is actually a climbing hydrangea, isn't Oh, yes. yes. Uh, well, in yeah. fact, there's yeah. not one. There are actually a whole series of species of climbing hydrangeas, uh, some of which are evergreen, some of which are deciduous. Some are subtropical. There's uh, a couple of them that come from the Philippines. Okay. Um, so the hydrangeas are a much bigger group of plants with mu- far more diversity in it than most people realise. Mm. Um and uh, the climbing group, we should, should talk about one day. I'll bring in a, a range of them at some stage or another to talk about because they're one of the few self-clinging, flowering, shade-tolerant climbers that I think you can get. Mm. Mm. You know, So they, they fit a niche that almost nothing else can fit mm. into. Um, and they're also very manageable climbers, so they're not climbers they that get out of hand. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're actually very manageable within a smallish space or in a, sh- in a narrow space, You know, places where other climbers could actually end up being a bit of a nightmare and mm. difficult to maintain. Mm. So the climbing hydrangeas are very worthwhile yeah. plants mm. and they're far more diverse than people realise. Mm. With the ones that you were just talking about, the bushier ones, yeah. um, when you say they can take a bit more sun, what do you mean? Uh, I would like to have them in a spot where they got the sun up to at least about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning okay. uh, and they'd certainly be quite happy to get the sun late in the afternoon. I would try and keep them out of the midday sun only because when we get those 45-degree days, that would be pushing it mm. and we seem to get more of those as time goes on. So uh, they are quite sun tolerant, particularly if their roots are mulched and they're not too dry. Um, but, yeah, I'd just keep them out of the real heat of the day. Okay, so late afternoon. Late afternoon would be fine. sun yeah. is okay. Yeah, that'd Even be fine. a hot spot. Yep, yeah. I would have thought okay. so. Once the real heat's gone out of the day and it's not sort of straight up, because mm-hmm. um, uh, they've got a very hard leaf. They're, yeah. not, they're not like the normal yeah. hydrangea. Yep. They certainly don't flag when it gets hot. Mm. Uh, mm. like the ordinary hydrangea will even in the shade. And even though you know its roots are damp because uh, it just can't pump, enough, pump up enough water to keep it mm. yep. turgid. Yep. So, uh, yeah, so the oak-leafed hydrangeas are an easier group of plants in our sort of Mediterranean-style climate. Yep. yep. Good. So there we go. Excellent. And the other plant? And the other plant I bought in this morning is a real weirdo. Uh, it's a, th- a thing called Wigandia. W-I-G-A-N-D-I-A, Wigandia Caracasana. And it comes from Mexico and Nicaragua and all through that Central American area. And it's a small tree. 
Um, it'll get up to probably four, maybe five metres, uh, with quite a spreading crown, normally multi-trunk from the bottom, and in fact it is inclined to sucker a little bit, so people need to be aware that Wigandia will suddenly pop up well away from the parent tree. Right. Uh, and mine certainly has done it in the garden at home. Now, I tried three times to get a Wigandia growing at Macedon. Because it comes from where it does, it's not particularly frost-hardy. But once it becomes woody, then the frost will hit the tops mm. and the plant will keep going. So even, was it last year when we had some seriously heavy mm, frosts? Yes. Yeah, well, my Wigandia got beaten to bilio, but I cut all the dead wood off it in the spring, and now it's all back up there again. The leaves can be up to nearly a metre long on a well-grown, vigorous mm. tree. So foliage-wise, it's very impressive. Uh, one point of warning, though, the foliage has bristles on it that can act a little bit like stinging nettles on some people's skin. Okay. So it can be sort of a bit prickly when you're dealing mm. with it. Um, and in the late spring, early summer, it comes out with huge heads of rich, dark mauve flowers mm. uh, that sit up among, above the foliage. Mm. So a Wigandia in full flower is truly impressive. It is just the most lovely, lovely flower. Um, and it's one of those sort of offbeat plants that was obviously, it had a popularity period sometime way back at the beginning of the last century because there's old ones around in places like the Geelong Botanic Gardens. There was one, and I don't know whether it's still there or not, down at Kuroit Botanic Gardens. Um, uh, so there were old ones dotted around. And, and in fact, the one at Kuroit was the very first one I ever saw and it was standing on the nature strip outside the Botanic Gardens, this huge, big, overt-looking thing that I'd never seen before, and I had no idea what it was. So I was on the hunt once I'd found this plant to find out what the dickens Mm. I was looking at. Um, And so it obviously had its period where it was popular, at least in public planting. Um, But whether it's ever been all that commonly grown commercially, I don't think. Um, And it grows really fast. I mean, this one's in an 8-inch pot or 20-centimetre pot or whatever. It's uh, probably 30 centimetres tall. It's probably only six months old from a root cutting. Um, If you plant this in the ground, come next spring when the weather warms up, it will grow to probably three or four metres tall Mm. in the one growing Mm. season. So if you want instant impact, (laughs) a Wigandia could easily do it for you. But it's not for the mild-mannered and and gentle gardener because it's a it's a big gutsy uh, tropical looking plant uh, with outrageous flower heads on it and a huge zest for life if it's happy where it is so you end up with lots more of them so it's a plant to plant with some care but um, I love it I've got it planted just behind a, a teak bench in our garden uh, and it comes up and it shades right over the top mm. of you in the summer uh, and it's just got this wonderful dark shady sort of feel underneath it so you feel like you're sort of enclosed and mm. uh, I think it's a fabulous plant mm. so Wigandia and as far as I know there's only the one species in the genus okay. um, and uh, and it's not one of those plants you'll see around terribly often but if you like that sort of tropical look in the garden you could go far worse than planting a Wigandia, I reckon, Mm. Um, and just give it a little bit of space to do its thing so that you can appreciate it. Mm. And I guess um, until it it gets, you know, it hardens up more and gets up a bit of a height, Mm. you're going to have to give it some sort of protection in winter. Anywhere that you have frost, yes, you will need to deal with it. I mean, around suburban Melbourne, you almost don't get frost anymore. I mean... It's, Apart from Eltham. Oh, well, Eltham's sort of getting out <laughs> to the bush almost. Uh, still, you know. It's often, not, I'm it's, afraid. It's yeah. elevated. Suburbia's yeah. caught up. Well, I know suburbia <laughs> sort of has, but, yeah, Eltham is far enough from the main city sort of hot thing, whatever they call mm. that, that heat blanket over the city, yep. um, uh, that you will get frost out there. But 
again, they're probably not so severe as what I get at Macedon, and yet I've managed to get one going. Yep. And probably if you're in a frosty area, what I'd do is actually, if you bought one now, I wouldn't plant it. I'd keep it in the pot and put it on a veranda or somewhere until where spring. it's sheltered until spring. Yep. Plant it out after the frosts are over, and that will give it as long as possible to get established before the next set of frosts mm. come in. Fair enough. Um, you do that, and you shouldn't have a problem. Yep. Uh, and look, if it does get whack packed by the frost, you cut it back, and as long as it's got plenty of woody structure, off it'll go again. Yep. Uh, so, yes, there's no killing it once you've got it going. Yep. Uh, and I love my wigander in the garden. It just looks fantastic. And where it sits, if you sort of glance slightly to the right, I've got a couple of Abyssinian bananas growing. So you could actually put on your leopard skin lap lap and go swinging <laughs> through the trees. And there's a mental image for everybody this early in the morning. <laughs> so, oh, dear. After that, how am I going to entice people to give us a call? <laughs> that number, if you would like to join in the conversation, not particularly that subject, but, um, yes, if you have any gardening questions or queries or comments, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155. That's 94190155. You're going away again. Mm. Um, you... I guess you, you've you've basically picked a good time to go for the garden because this is one of the problems we we often talk about um, how to look after at, at Christmas time how to yeah. look after your plants and things you know put them in sit them in in bowls of water or whatever and all the rest it's of it. It's not a good time for a gardener to go on holidays. Yes. In, at Christmas. But no, now is a good now time. Now is an excellent yeah. time, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, look, if you've got on top of the weeds and the garden's looking reasonably tidy, you can sort of walk away from it at this time of the year for a few weeks and, and uh, to no real damage. Although I reckon the weeds are much worse now mm. that we've had this bit of rain and oh, we've yeah. still got the warmth. Yeah, the we're cleaners getting, are coming up getting, everywhere. <laughs> we're getting weeds <laughs> that we don't usually get till spring. Mm. So I, that's what I'm finding in my garden anyway. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I was out in the garden the other day pulling out cleavers uh, and, and a few other weeds, that nasty little euphorbia petty mm. spurge that comes up mm. everywhere. Um, so, yeah, but if you can get on top of the weeding a little bit and get some perhaps some mulch down on top of it to make mm. sure that it stays that way until you get home. Um, I mean, I don't mind if my perennials don't get cut down until June or July and some of them actually have some structure about them mm. that I'm quite happy to leave them stand, particularly the ornamental grasses and things. Um, I mean, they're not going to die if you don't cut them down for a little no, while. No. no, and you don't, ha- and it's, you know, it's it's too early to worry about having to prune the fruit trees or the roses or any of those other things or the hydrangeas for that matter. Yep. Um, so it is a window of opportunity in a way to sort of go I away. I think so. And then you can yeah. get back in, in June all invigorated and ready to garden again and get stuck into all the pruning and other things that you need to do. Mm. Um, and probably the only thing I would have liked to have got done before I left, but again, it won't probably matter until I leave it till June, I quite like to prune my deciduous clematis fairly early mm-hmm. um, because they start forming buds quite quickly. Okay. And if you prune them too late in the season, you often damage... <coughs> the new growths that are coming out off the plants uh, to get the old stuff out. Yep. So I tend to try and prune my clematis reasonably early. Um, But, look, at the end of the day, if I prune a bit later and they've got new shoots starting on them already, well, so be it. I might add, I did prune a tree peony in the nursery yesterday, which is a very old cultivar called Destiny, uh, and it's always the first tree peony to grow in the in the winter, start to shoot. It's already got buds on it. Mm. Mm. 
So my and so I had all the old spent flower spikes still sitting on the top of the plant. Right. So I went through it yesterday and cut back to the nice fat buds, and there's two or three flower buds already starting to form on Peony Destiny. And I mean that's ridiculous. Mm, that's crazy. <laughs> Whether they'll come to anything, I don't know. I mean, if the cold weather really sets in, it'll sort of check them. It'll hold them back. Yeah, that's um, right. Uh, so, yes, I'd probably do my tree peonies before I go away if I could as well because you can see where the fat buds are and you can take the old dead flower spikes out uh, and then they'll just sit there looking like gnarly old men until um, mm. spring comes. Mm. So, yeah, so I think it's quite a good time for me to disappear. Um, and uh, there'll be plenty of work to do when I get home, but the broad beans oh, yes. are coming up, the silver beet and spinach has been planted, the broccoli's in the ground, Um so all that stuff's happening while I'm away. I did notice the miners' lettuce is coming up in amongst all the broad bean seedlings coming up. So the miners' <laughs> lettuce has started to germinate all through the veggie garden again. Um, so I'll probably have to pull a whole, whole pile of that out when I get home. Mm. Um, but you know, being a, it's 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 a gentle time of the year, so it you is. can get away. Yep, yep. Mm. I'm I'm madly at the moment. Um, as I weed each bed, I'm madly feeding it and then mulching with autumn leaves, of which I've got absolutely copious amounts yeah. of at the moment. They've, it's a, you know, it's just a carpet of autumn mm. leaves at the moment, which is fantastic to look at. But they do need to get. Yeah, they need mm. to. Get, they never land where they should stay. No, that's exactly right. <laughs> and and if if you get a bit of rain, they can actually be very slippery and quite dangerous mm. if they land on a hard surface. Mm. So. Um, Yes, yeah, so I'm madly, madly, you know, pushing wheelbarrows loaded with, with autumn oh, leaves at the and moment. And it's fantastic it's, it's when fun. your garden gets to a point where some of its trees are becoming a mulching asset. Mm. Yes. You know, my mm. garden's got to that over the last few years. I've suddenly started to note that I'm getting a lot of leaf litter now that I can throw straight back up onto the garden beds. Um, and it's sort of mulching the easy way. Mm. And, mm. and I it's free mulch. And it's free mulch. Yeah. Uh, and all those deciduous trees' leaves are really useful as organic material. So Gosh, yes. they rot down nice and quickly and uh, put the nutrients back into the ground. And, you know, when you scratch them aside, there's all the little worms and things mm. underneath having a great old time. Um, so it's really beneficial to yourself. Soil, but I did see somebody the other day burning oak leaves again. Oh no! Oh, I get so angry when I see that. And it was up at Mount Massad in one of the big gardens. They oh, raked no. up all their oak leaves and were burning them. I was horrified. Uh, I can't I believe just, yeah. people still do no, that. No, I can't either. But the, the the other thing is that aesthetically, the leaves are a really nice colour on yeah. the garden beds. They, they look great. Yeah. Yeah, well, I do have some aesthetic uh, issues with things like straw and hay and things like that on beds because it looks rather too rural sometimes. Uh, but you know, dead leaves are really good that way. No, they look yeah. great, yeah. Oh, and if the person who was burning their leaves out there is listening this morning, why don't you rake them up, put them in bags and put them out the front and say leaves free to a good home if you're not going to use them yourself? I mean, some of our gardens do get so many leaves that yes, I can actually understand them. there being a yeah. surfeit of leaves because, uh, you know, when you have huge oak trees and things in but the you garden... you could just compost them. They could exactly. just rake them up into a corner and compost them. But, exactly. You know, but, uh, yeah, why you would burn them? It was a bloke, I'll bet. Yeah. <laughs> Blokes love to burn stuff. Tell me about it. My <laughs> next door neighbour. Oh dear! Yeah. And he never checks first if I'm going to hang washing on the oh, line. Oh yeah, that'd be right as and, well. And you know, uh, I mean, it's I've got a neighbour who seems to burn every drinks. time I have a garden opening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So some people don't think it through. Oh, yeah. I haven't burnt anything. 
I can't remember. Yeah. Well, no. see, I don't even when burn I, all my gum bark and twigs and stuff because, no. well, I do burn it in a sense because a lot so of it becomes kindling. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it becomes kindling. Yeah, and so I use that for kindling. Yeah. And then the ash that comes out of the fire goes back into the compost heaps right. or sprinkled mm. over the garden yep. beds because um, uh, it will put nutrients and minerals back into the ground as well. Um, so there's very, well, there's nothing organic that really leaves our place. Yeah, no, you know, nothing we utilize, organic leaves my car. Yeah, uh, you know, we find ways and means of using everything, yeah. even the pernicious weeds. We kill it first in one way or another, or we put it down into our worm composting toilet system, mm. or we deal with it in some way or another. Mm. You know, so if I find a patch of onion weed I've got to deal with, well, it goes into the septic tank, uh, so it then gets rot down by the worms and goes back into the garden as a liquid slurry. Um, so, you know, and it's not that hard to do. You know, all these things are actually quite practical, quite simple, and and you're not a you don't have to be a, a nutty greenie to want to no. keep organic material on your property. Yeah, the only other thing I do is mulch. Yeah, so I have a good a good petrol driven yeah, mulcher, so do I. and, and yeah. I just well, it's, it's only three or four days a year, mm. and I I just put through I do the pruning and then I put it yeah, all through, it through there all, and yeah. it all goes back. Well, I've actually garden. taken that to another step because when I prune in my garden, I can end up with a mountain of yes. stuff yeah. and uh, it can take me days or weeks to get it all through mm. the shredder. I've got a tame tree surgeon. Okay. The gorgeous Craig who comes around to my place when I've got a really big pile uh, and in five minutes his boys throw the whole thing through the big industrial shredder, which is fantastic. Uh, And because we get on so well, he does it as a freebie for me because I throw lots of work his way. But even if I had to pay to have it done, I would save so much time. And, of course, he can deal with much bigger branches than I could have done uh, with my sort of home shredder. I mean, I did buy a big one, but it still Mm. can't cope with anything terribly large. Uh, And then... He dumps me a whole load of mulch. Mm. And uh, so I've got my shredder to do the day-to-day stuff when I do mm. a little bit of pruning. Mm. But, yes, when I do my major prune, I just ring Craig. <laughs> and, and actually, they came past the other day and I was about to ring them. They saw a pile out in the front of my garden and they came in and did it without even being asked. So how good's that? Because <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, I'm going away. I better deal with this before I go away. I don't want the neighbours to see a great pile of rubbish there for weeks because uh, it was on the nature strip. Um, and, yeah, Craig came past with the guys and went, oh, look, Stephen's got a pile of rubbish so dealt with it fantastic so yeah so if you build up a good relationship with some of these people <laughs> mm. it can be mm. very uh advantageous yep penny jobs for you in the garden at the moment oh look i'm doing a bit of planting. weeding but I'm, you I'm are weeding, planting but still. i'm also yep. doing some planting i i haven't done any planting until we got the rain yeah um i just wasn't worth it i've had well, sitting stuff there was sitting no there point pots ready mm. to go into the garden yeah. and so i planted um a black currant yesterday, which is going to be interesting to see whether I'll get fruit or not. Yeah, it will I'll be. be. Yeah, we, will we'll be. need reports on that. But I know um, not far away at um, at the Briars, which is a really interesting property on the peninsula where they're doing some amazing things. Um, but they've, they've certainly got red currants growing there. and they're, they? they're quite close to the coast. So I, I figured it yeah. was worth a try. And look, you don't know um, unless you try, do you? Yeah, and I also put in a Jostaberry. Oh, yes. So, which is a cross between a black currant and a gooseberry. And I have less hope of that. Do you? Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Well, they, gooseberries need more cold. Yeah, than, true. Than Although I found the Jostaberry much more robust as a plant yeah, yeah. Than, the, yeah. than the black Look, and I, red currants. I but... want them to be screening plants as well as to mm. bear fruit. And, yeah. and even if, and presumably they'll still flower even if they don't bear fruit. You'd assume. Um, and the flowers are beautiful. Mm. So, you know, for some of them, they're worth growing just for the flowers. Mm. But I used to, when I was up in Ballarat, I used to grow black currants and I'd make black currant and sweet Sicily jelly. 
Ooh. And that was just gorgeous. And I was just, I was thinking about it the other day and I just thought, oh, I might try black currant skin. Yeah. So I've been planting some black currants. I did try black and red currants in Eltham because yeah. I used to, when I was living in Tasmania, um, black currants were to die for down mm. there. They grew so easily. They loved the Tassie climate. Yeah. Well, they used to grow them on the apple in the apple orchards with hops and black currants were the three crops that they'd have in mm. So they'd have the apples with hops and black currants. Mm. And apparently that's now gone out of... Um, favour, but there are still a few. Well, you could make all of the apple orchards. You yeah, could make your own cider, you your own beer, yeah. uh, and your and own ribena. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and a lot of what the black currants that are left down there, because I've just been working on an article for it for Organic Gardener magazine. Um, apparently, most of them get sold off to make the the um, black currant cordials, right? Um, rather than to be used to make jams. And oh, but black currant jam is to die yeah. for. I yeah, think yeah. There's some things the you shouldn't jams. waste things yeah. in other ways. Yeah. You should use them so, for the best sorry, things. But I no, that, that, you were talking that's about all right. Also. All I was going to say was that um, I did get them both fruiting, yeah. um, but. Um, I didn't get all that much fruit on the – it wasn't terribly productive on the black currant, whereas the red currant did quite well, actually, okay. and I had that for quite a few years mm. um, until we just got too dry and it's in a spot where I yeah. can't water easily. Yeah. Um, and so I lost both of them. But, yeah, I, I had much more success with mm. the red currant than the black currant. But I'll be interested to Has anybody to tried see. white currants? Well, right, white currants are just a an aberration of a red currant. Oh, yeah, so they're just so a red currant if red version. currants will grow, then white currants Then white currants would, yeah. yeah. No, well, that sort of sort of not yeah. sure about white currants. There's something well, sort of anemic-looking yeah. about them. Yeah, they, they, they are apparently, and I haven't eaten them, but they're apparently more palatable than the red currants. So the red currants and black currants can be a bit acidic for yeah. some people. They're not as sweet as, True. say, blueberries. You know, So yeah. that's why you don't usually see them in supermarkets mm. because they're not... A f- usually a fresh-eaten thing, although I actually really like fresh black currants. I don't mind them. Uh, no, and, I like and them. Yeah. red currants, but I like – I'm a, not a sweet person. I'm a, more of a Yeah, we've heard that of person. you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Stephen. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry day. there. Look, I, when they're yeah, there, I, I leap myself, in. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I put myself into that. Uh, um, so, but I just think that they're a, they're a berry that needs to be revived. So it's uh, – yeah, so I think I think it's a good it's a good plant to think about, yep. um, particularly if you get a little bit of cold. So you do you do need to get the odd frost for mm. them to do well. Yes, yeah, yeah. no, so, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm also, but I'll yeah report yeah. back. I'll be and, interested. And I'm also only just about to plant my garlic. Okay. So you haven't got you yours in yet? I haven't got mine in yet. Yeah. I, I put mine in a couple of weeks back because I did buy some of that garlic from up at Tesla's from that gentleman whose name I can't remember now. Who... John Presley. Yeah, must have been. Yes, yes. I think it was. Yeah. And he had uh, some French named garlic or something. Something. Germador. No. No. It's rouge something or rose something. Rose Duvar. Rose, rose Duvar, du- yeah. which is a, which is a um, silver skin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I bought some of that from him. Yep. Uh, it's just coming up, okay. uh, and my own garlic that I'd kept from the year before is already, you know, sort of Good. S- several inches tall. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I think that was your purple dynamite or whatever it's called. 
Dynamite, Dynamite Purple. Purple. Yeah, yeah. See, <laughs> which is a Creole. Yeah, which, which I'm Creole. hopeless so you've, with all these names. So you've got two with quite white, silvery yeah. skins mm. um, and two long stores. So and both, that's what I wanted. Both of those will store for 12 yeah. months. But you don't get the really big bulbs that you get with turbans and mm. some of the other I'm happy to get the storage potential. Yeah, but they're beautiful, really nice flavours. Yeah, yeah. So I'm quite happy with those. So they've gone in and, yes, mine were already starting to shoot, the ones I had. The ones I got from John were still quite firm. So obviously they're going to they store for longer, so they don't shoot as well. So, yeah, so my garlic's underway. So it'll all be growing while I'm away. Yeah. Well, I haven't put mine in because I've had rust problems. So my garden is quite enclosed, and that's a deliberate thing because we don't have fences. We grow a lot of things along our boundaries, but it means there's a lot of shade and there's not – the wind movement that you need. So with the warmer weather in autumn, warmer and humid weather, um, I've been getting rust on Uh the garlics. Normally if you're going to get rust, you don't get it till spring. Um, But because of that, I've held off planting until much later so that we're past the warmer yeah, so that hopefully that the rust disease is coming. Still haven't again. got there. Yes, <laughs> well, no, but it's still I will be balmy. putting it in in the next mm. in the next two weeks. So if you haven't got it in, you do have the whole of May and the first week or so of June to get it in. Right. But the other thing that I'm going to do um, in spring, because one of the things I found in spring was that the really intense heat knocked the garlic, the early heat. Yes. Um, so I'm planting where I can create shade. So oh, if we have a really yeah. hot day forecast, I will just sh- throw some old sheets yep. under the frame that I've got around these couple of garden beds. So I'm hoping to overcome that early heat at the wrong stage for mm. the garlic. Mm. Bulbs, yeah, because it didn't help the garlic bulbs to mature last year, no, did it? Well, no. I ended up with quite small bulbs yeah. oh, that, on a lot of my yeah. garlic. That, that, that massive hot day just knocked yeah. so much. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, I've virtually lost all my crop of pomegranates because mm. the flowers just dropped. Yeah, you know, one hot day, and that's yeah. all it takes. Yeah, yeah. at that because time, because it was so yeah. unseasonal. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, it's awful. So, so while we're quickly talking about um, seasonality with planting your garlic, um, I presume there's still a window of opportunity for for popping in your coriander as well. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, coriander in autumn is is good. Yep. yep. And how how far would you extend that window of opportunity? I up actually until... look if if we get a mild winter, I'd plant right through winter if you want. We to, do. If you want an ongoing harvest of yep. leaves, yeah. Um, I, it, it, in really cold regions, I wouldn't like. Mm. I wouldn't plant in Macedon. Wouldn't plant coriander in the in the middle of winter. But where I am, um, then yeah, you just yeah, keep going. I with just it. keep going. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So it just depends. I mean, yep. with with the way the seasons are, it's a bit hard to know. I know it's a bit crazy. It's got to be but... a bit adaptable. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's go to first up to uh, Jill in Malvern. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Pam, Penny. Hi, Stephen. Jill. Um, I was going to tell you about the things I've been doing with children with herbs and plants. Right. Um, for years, I've been giving plants to children when they're two, three, four years of age, instead of giving them the usual toy mania and um, Scloranthus, Uniflorus and Biflorus has always been a hit mm-hmm. because kids plant yeah, kids love and those they sort of feel things. it yeah. and they look velvety but then they're co- the, um, you know, the surface is quite rough and they're surprised you know and to have children surprised in this society is brilliant and the other thing I did was to give a black currant to my grandson when he was two yeah. and it's still going Yes, it only gets a a few, uh, but he likes it. And so now I've given him a blueberry. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah, so a gardener um, in the making. Well, he's um, 
when he was two years of age, he knew the names of five herbs that he took to to his crèche and told, said what the names were. And he said, Rosemary, eat a little bit, but not too much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, last uh, month, um, or the start of uh, May, my daughter's um, kids' school had all the parents had to supply a few things for the Mother's Day stall and they they picked ten little posies of herbs, you know, edible herbs, parsley and bay and rosemary and so on. And uh, all of those went very, very quickly. Children took them. So in a way, you can do subliminal teaching about herbs in lots and lots of ways. Yeah, that's great, Jill. And I, I... now um, I'm going to the younger grandsons, Patrick's creche, and we're having a planting day. And I'm taking about seven plants um, that we're going to plant in the garden there. And that includes a hops plant. Mm-hmm. And um, Good. I, I like I, children to make beer early. It's a good well, idea. Well, <laughs> they're just beautiful, beautiful um, pods, aren't they? They are. And it's a lovely they, plant. And they really do brilliant teaching. They yeah. go to Gowrie, which is in... Lady Gowrie, which is in... Um, North Carlton and yes I've got a horseradish to give them and they have a um, each kid's going to plant a nasturtium seed in a little pot and take home and um, I've also got cuttings you know of geranium and um, plectransis eclini or plectransis lavender and yeah so we're going to have a jolly morning Sounds great, Jill. And I gather you've got Karen Sutherland coming to talk to you about Australian native um, herbs at some well, point. Well, she's coming to talk about edible, edible, unusual yeah. edible. So I, on the website for the Herb Society and the Facebook page, I've put some uh, Warrigal Greens. Um, uh, Warrigal Greens on the Herb Society and I've put other things on the Facebook um, well, that that should be a great presentation, though, because Karen's you know such a good speaker and so yes, knowledgeable. Yes, um, one of our um, members, Robin, um, rang her and got her organised, so that's right. really nice. Yeah, it's good. And then um, next year, um, Graham Lay's going to come, and he's going to talk about fifty years of chasing florals. Uh, Indigenous floral plants, and at the moment he's in the Kimberleys for two weeks. So, mm. you know, he's really on the on the uh, let's say the bedding edge of uh, Australian natives. So, yeah. and exploring their uses, and yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Good to see. Yeah. So, um, our next talk with Karen is second uh, of June, and that's. Herb Society will be 36 years old then, mm. or 36 years young, but we still get, you know, about 30 people every meeting. Yeah. And um, one of our, Bill Whitehead, who lives in Geelong, is 100 at the, in the middle of June, so we're celebrating his birthday. <laughs> and, Good on um, you. The, uh, Salvia Group are coming and Geelong Herb Society coming up to us for a big celebration. So, Fantastic. And I've already had you know, a couple of people who I know on Facebook now are going to come 
to that meeting. So we've got a few more people out of Facebook, especially people who are young, you know, in their 40s or 50s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really young. Because <laughs> I'm in my 70s. <laughs> uh, okay. Thanks, Jill. That's right. Bye-bye. Bye. And next up we're going to Pam in Kyneton. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, everybody. I've just finished my egg and toast. All right. Well Good on you. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to know about gooseberries. Uh, I was listening to your conversation about the um, currants, red currants, which, and I grow red currants and I grow black currants, and they grow really well, and I've made beautiful red currant jelly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to put in some gooseberries. I tried blueberries, but I think gooseberries would be tougher than blueberries. Do you think that that's the case? They probably cope with the heat in summer better than the blueberries would, but the blueberries will certainly cope with really cold conditions. Mm, yeah, yes. it depends yeah. what your soil is. Too. Yeah, and um, yeah, if you've got a good acid soil, the blueberries would probably be fine. Uh, yeah. And, of course, there well, there's a couple of blueberry um, farms around the Macedon Ranges, so... There's one out on the Tilden Road mm. uh, on the way to mm. uh, tr- Tilden and Trentham, um, mm. and the blueberries grow fine there. Yeah, but, I mean, gooseberries are fantastic, though. Mm. I can remember um, them growing up around Ballarat, Yeah, um, and they do really well up there. But you might also want to think about the Jostaberry that we were mm. talking about before. Uh, no, 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 I don't go to any of those. We've had a go at all of those, and to be honest... I think you're overrated. Sure. (laughs) All right, well, buy some gooseberries. The the issue is, of course, there's only probably a couple of different gooseberry cultivars available these days. I mean, once upon a time, there was probably 100 of them. Mm, And Uh, there probably still is overseas. Yeah, but but here you're lucky if you can get more than one or two different Mm. forms. But they'll still be lovely fruit and and, uh, and a worthy bush in the garden, as long as you don't mind something that's a bit prickly and that roots down every time its branch hits the ground. Yes, now, Stephen, that was the varieties that I wanted to ask about because I've had sort of conflicting information on the type of gooseberries that you can plant. So is there a red gooseberry? Well, most gooseberries ripen red. Yes. Um, But whether there's a specific cultivar that's red from an earlier phase, I'm not sure, at least not sure of whether there's one available. I'm sure there's varieties that do that. Um, I think you're just going to have to make do with what varieties you can get hold of because there aren't that many of them in this country. Okay, so but do you think there are still a couple of varieties? I'm sure there are at least a couple of varieties out there. So you've got to do a little bit of hunting around and see who's got what. Um, I'm not sure who's selling at the moment, but... Diggers sell gooseberries. So diggers would have them. I think um, New Gippsland Seed Farm used to have them on their list as Mm, well at one stage. So they could be worthwhile getting in touch with. Both of those two, black currants and red currants, I know, because I've checked that recently, but I didn't check. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so you'll only have a choice of a couple anyway, I think. That's okay. I, I just wasn't sure if there was a choice. So that's good. I know there's a choice now. And the other reason I wanted I lo- wanted to grow the berry bushes was because I want to encourage the small... I, I get small birds here. I want to put understory things in for the small birds. Mm-hmm. Well, gooseberry bushes are really good for small birds because they're prickly. <laughs> yes, so the little right. birds so will get down in amongst why, them well. Yeah, and that's why I want to plant them 
I want to keep the small birds around and I'll only do that if I put in the right vegetation mm. and not keep just planting gum trees yeah, well, like everybody does. Yeah, you've, you've got to have that lower story of yeah. things, you know, yeah, little birds and the, gra- like that. and the grasses for yeah. the, for the that's seed. That's right. The, yeah, yeah so that's what I was trying to do. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. All right, well, All enjoy right, your good Thank you very much. You've okay. answered my question lovely. Thank okay. you. Bye. See you. Bye-bye. Okay, that number if you'd like to join us this morning, we're running through until 9.15, so you've got about 30 minutes to jump on the phone line if you'd like to ring in. The number is 94190155. That's 94190155. We do have Stephen Ryan and Penny Woodward in the studio this morning, so we'd love to hear from you. Um, now... Uh, I do want to take this opportunity to mention a book that's just been released in Australia. And, Stephen, I did specially bring this in today because I knew you were about to head off to Italy. Yeah. Um, It's absolutely a beautiful book. And and why I was attracted to it in the first place, of course, is because I went to Italy last year and I went up to, as part of the tour I did, I went up to the Italian lakes and saw quite a few gardens Mm. up around the area of both... Lake Maggiore and Lake Como and it's just a glorious part of the world and then I saw that this book was just being released. Um, Now it is um, uh, a UK publication. It's actually published by Quarto in the UK but Murdoch Books has... um, has uh, taken it up for the uh, the Australian side of the distribution, so uh, it can be found under Murdoch Book Catalogues. Now, it's written by Stephen Desmond. Um, it's it's obviously, um, I should say, a, 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 a massive production. It's a huge book. It's it's full of wonderful, wonderful photographs. Yes, if that doesn't get um, you going to Italy, nothing will. <laughs> Um, it is it is one you could proudly leave on a coffee table, but um, it's the amount of information that's in the book. So it's not one of these flippant ones where it's just all photographs and there's yeah. no text. Yeah. Um, it really delves in depth into into the gardens, into their histories, into their planting guides, into the changes of ownership because um, so many of these gardens date back, um, you know, a long time and they've undergone all sorts of changes mm. Um, and I've just found it an absolutely mesmerising book. Now, the author himself is Stephen Desmond, and um, he's a gardener, he's a writer and lecturer with a special interest in the history gardens of continental Europe. He's led more than 30 specialist tours to the gardens of the Italian lakes. He lectures at the University of Oxford, and he advises on the conservation of historic gardens. So he's he knows his he stuff. knows his stuff, and it's very evident as soon as you you start to uh, dive into the book and read it. And I must say also because I, I've mentioned the photography, and the photography is just stunning. The photographer is Marianne Majerus. And she is a prestigious and prolific international photographer of gardeners uh, and gardens and winner of the Garden Media Guild Features Photographer of the Year Award in 2013. So she also definitely knows her photography. Um, The book is divided basically into two parts. Part one deals with Lake Maggiore, which is the major lake, which Mm. is what... Lake Maggiore means, or the Mother Lake, and uh, the second part deals with Lake Como, um, and then it it divides up into and it deals with some fascinating Italian history, which I didn't know about the whole Lake District in general. Um, 
But then it goes into the specific uh, gardens that can be found around those two lakes. And it, as I say, it goes into in-depth. So each particular garden, um, there's at least 12 pages spent on each garden with, with, with as I say, very much in-depth um, text and it goes through all the major ones that people might have heard of. For instance, in Lake Maggiore, of course, they talk about Isola Bella and Isola Madre. Um, but it also goes through some of the lesser known ones. And the same with Lake Como, um, some of the gardens at Delzi. Of course, it goes to Villa Deste. Mm. It has to. You can't ignore Villa Deste. But it goes to some of the most beautiful gardens that I've personally visited, like Villa del Balbianella. Um, Villa Carlotta, which is one that I think nearly every tourist that goes up to Lake Como goes to visit. Um, but I just, I just thought for any listeners who've either been to Italy up around the Lakes District or for anyone who's planning a trip, this book would be very well worthwhile reading. At the back of the book, um, they've actually provided a map of each lake and they've, put, they've identified where each of the gardens is. So yeah, it's, which it's, would be very useful. Totally, and they also they also give uh, um, a full listing of each of those gardens, the exact address, when it's open to the public, times it's open, um, so and and give a website for each of those gardens as well. Oh, so fabulous! So it gives you a wonderful way of planning if you're going up to that area. You have to visit some of these gardens; they're just magical. And for me, it's been a a, a Absolute nostalgic trip back. <laughs> I'll bet, yes. Oh, yes, remember when oh, we were there. But yes. they've captured it so well. I mean, I don't have to try and remember the individual histories of the garden because it's all there for me. Yeah. And and they more than 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 augment my photos that I took. I mean, <laughs> these photos are just stunning. So it's been a real memory trip back for me. Um, so I do, I do highly re- recommend it. As I say, um, it's... The title is Gardens of the Italian Lakes. Um, it does retail at sixty nine ninety nine, in other words, seventy dollars. Um, but it's it's definitely well worth the money. The author is Stephen Desmond. The uh, photographer is Marianne Majerus. And uh, in Australia, it's published by Quarto UK, but in Australia, it's being released through um, Murdoch Books. So you should be able to find that in most good bookshops. So um, look out for that one if you're at all planning to go to Italy or you've been mm. and you'd love to have a reminisce like I did. Um, uh, Pam, can I just add to that that uh, as being a user of libraries, that if you feel that you can't afford a book like that, you can go to your local library and ask them to buy a copy in. Um, mm. And often they will put it on their acquisitions list and you can then borrow it and, and read it without having to actually buy a copy. So don't, don't forget your local libraries. Yeah, absolutely. Because because I feel it's such a worthwhile book, yeah. I'm sure libraries would be more than happy yeah. to, to have a copy of it because... Mm. Um, and, and often if they don't have a copy themselves, they can get it in from another library service they can, for, they a can small, source for a it. small charge. Yes. So, you know, it's a, yeah, don't, as I said, don't forget yep. to local No, it's library. a great idea. Yeah. Yep, excellent. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned, we're running through until 9.15, so we'd love to hear from you. The number 94190155. And, uh, yes, give us a call. Why not indeed? We've come all the way in here. You might as well make use of us. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And talking about coming in here, 
by golly, it's getting pitch black now when I get up yes. on a Sunday morning. Yes, isn't it what? Yes. Uh, <laughs> but anyhow, you know, that's just part of what we do. Um, and but because uh, it's been so mild, um, it hasn't really hit home yet. No, no, we haven't got up and one, haven't had mm. to get up in one of those really and scrape bleak, the ice fr- off yes, the windscreen, <laughs> freezing mornings, and yes, running around in the rain and all that sort of stuff. It really just hasn't happened much yet. So it's been a fairly easy thing to get up to come down to 3CR so far. It certainly so, has. But by June it won't be. No. <laughs> no. Well, we hope. We hope, we, we hope it won't be, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we know it's going to be darker. That yes. we can be sure of. Yes. But, yes, how much more rain we're going to get, who knows. Mm. Uh, Stephen, we, sh- we sh- should probably also um, mention quickly, though I know it's completely booked out, uh, later in the year, you are heading off to Madagascar again. I am in October. Uh, we've got a booked out tour going for 21 days to the magical island of Madagascar, which I am so looking forward to getting back to. Uh, but it's having, been a while since you've been. Yeah, five or six years, I yes. think, since I did the last tour. Um, and I have to say, if people even are vaguely interested, I'll be doing the tour again in 2017. I believe ASA are already taking bookings, so if people did want to get into in the group for 2017, it will be about the same time of the year, so it'll be in October. I'm sure if you go into the Australian Studying Abroad website, they'll have the tour up there and, and show you what it's all about. Um, and... Uh, we can only take 16 people, and I know that we've actually got a couple of people on a waiting list for this year's tour who, who will probably join next They'll year's join already. Next year, yep. So, you know, if you really were thinking about doing it, and I'm certainly not necessarily planning to do it again in 2018, so um, this might be your opportunity, it is an to, opportunity. Yeah, to, to come along because it's an amazing part of the world. Yep. That's why I thought we should mention it, because you do need to book ahead, yep. particularly with ASA tours. They they do book up very quickly. They can do, and then you're left out in the cold, and you think, oh, I would have loved to have gone on that. And yeah, and I've, I've had people talking to me about 2017 already, so there's mm. quite a few mm. people who are you know seriously considering it. So... Limited to 16 people, it won't take long to fill that one either. No, it won't. So, And I might add, though, if people want something a little uh, less um, uh, exciting and... Uh, adventurous. Uh, adventurous. Uh, I am doing Normandy in the Loire Valley again next year too. So in 2017, around about June, I'll be off to Normandy in the Loire Valley again. So if people want to do the chateaus, gardens and all that gorgeous food and wine of northern France, uh, in preference to Madagascar, you could go there. Well, that's a total contrast. It is a total contrast. <laughs> the only thing similar is the French language, I think, is probably the only similar thing about the two places. True, uh, but, true. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm doing that one again um, next year as well, so you might consider that one. Okay, excellent. And, again, that's going to be through ASA. Through Australian Studying Abroad, so go in and have a look at the website. Uh, well, Pam and Cordell came with me to France, and, well, and you came with me to Madagascar as well Absolutely. in one of my previous yes. incarnations. Uh, but I think you could recommend the French tour as something. Oh. Oh, it was worth doing. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. yes. Some of those French chateaus are just outrageous. But but even some of the little private French oh, gardens are mm, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. We did have some wonderful. gorgeous things. We had some And that's the good thing about time. these tours. I mean, you could probably go to France comparatively simply yourself uh, and drive around, go and visit some of the big gardens and chateaus and things. They're all open to the public anyway. Uh, 
but it takes a lot more time to see half as much stuff. And there's a lot of places that you get into with something like ASA that you would never find or never know about or perhaps not even be able to get into because they're only open for groups and bookings and things um, unless you went on the tour. So, And the other thing is that ASA also employ um, local guides as yep. well as, as the main guide. So although you are, you are the, the guide for the whole trip... Yep. Um, some of these local guides just are amazing in their knowledge. Oh, they, they certainly are. Uh, and that's the thing about an ASA tour. They, they, they're wanting you to have a great time, but they're also wanting you to learn stuff. So they make sure that they've got the right people around you uh, to make sure that you're learning about the animals or the plants or the garden history or the, uh, the art or, or, in fact, the wines and foods and things like that. So you, you find out a lot about the whole cultural sphere of the place you're going to. And so I think that they're very, very good tour company. They're, they're, they're actually really, um, well, one yeah, one, one of their aims is education. And, mm. in fact, they've, they've had links with universities. And yeah. I think I think students who go on some of these tours can actually get credits towards their courses. Oh, they get, a credit, yeah, they get their, credits their, towards their, their things, yeah. So I'm not sure about me taking t- students to Normandy, the Loire Valley. I don't know how many ticks you'll get at a university degree, but you'll have a nice time. <laughs> Mind you, if you were interested in, in ever making cider, you'd learn a lot from visiting yeah, the Loire you Valley. You would, you would indeed. <laughs> but, um, yeah, certainly to, to be recommended. And you will certainly find out all about lemurs if you go to Madagascar. Oh, yes, yes. You'll get close and personal with lemurs, I promise. Totally. <laughs> we must go to our next caller, and we have Anne online from Mount Martha. Good morning, Anne. Oh, good morning. Uh, thanks for your show. Um, First of all, I just wanted to make a comment about the agaves. I've got one that's flowered after 29 years. Yeah. So uh, I'm just thrilled by that. Mm-hmm. It came out of nowhere. But my main question is about figs. I've got quite a few varieties, and some of them have still got the figs on, not looking like they're going to ripen. No, probably won't. No. So should I start pruning now? Uh, look, what, there's some figs that have what they call a brebo crop which is a second crop that mm. forms in autumn, stays on the bush right through winter and then then, comes then actually comes, ripens in spring. So that's a standard thing that happens with some fig cultivars. Mm. So you've obviously got some of those and you've got some of the other figs. Yes. The standard time to um, prune figs is in winter. Um, and with the Brebo figs, you just need to prune around the fruit. So um, you obviously you don't want to lose the fruit, so you cut off the branches that don't have fruit on them and then the following year you you so you do it over a sort of a yeah. two-year period oh um, right i thought the breba fruit came first no that's the the breba is the is the one that comes second so that's the one that forms late in the in the season on the fruit so it's the it's the fruit that this it's there first in the spring because right. it's been there since the autumn so i guess it depends which way you look at it mm. yeah whereas yeah. the main no, crop this isn't is, the breba fruit this, this is the main crop. Well, if it's on the tree at the moment, look, whatever we call it, mm. this is the crop that stay, that overwinters, which doesn't ha- happen on all figs. Most, m- the majority of figs actually just fruit uh, but on, the, on um, new growth in spring mm-hmm. um, and it forms and it ripens and you harvest it in sure. autumn. But then you get these other figs that form in autumn and stay on the bush right through winter and they ripen in spring. So whatever name you give to them. So if you've got figs still sitting on your fig tree, the chances are that these are the ones that are formed in autumn. You need to just prune around them in winter. Okay. Okay. 
So then the following year you would prune back the branches that that, that had the that had the fix the previous previous year. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they're growing on new wood. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. That's okay. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks, Bye. Anne. And if anybody has too many figs that they can't eat, well, I would always help them. <laughs> and me. And me. It's, they are one of those I've fruit, actually got a fig that I'm planting in the next Oh, good. Bit, so, yes. yes. Yes, I put one in, but it's getting too crowded out by a whole pile of other things. So I've got to work out if I can find a place to yeah. shift it to. And it's They're supposed amazingly to be a adaptable that, yeah. plants. Well, this one's supposed to be a fig that should ripen for me at Macedon quite well. Yeah. I can't, it was one of those old heritage ones that I got from the heritage fruit people, and they actually don't have a name for it. Okay. Uh, Oh, but right. it was offered to me as a, a potential fig for our area. And because I was trying to get it into the ground somewhere, I really planted it in a in completely spot. inappropriate spot. So I've now got to work out where the hell I can plant something that grows as big as a fig tree uh, in my already comparatively crowded garden. But you can also, with figs, you can put them into holes that um, have something like corrugated iron around mm. them and you can keep them quite small. Mm. So And figs also grow quite well in big pots. Now, well, I've also seen sense. them espaliered. Yeah, yeah, well, I haven't got so a warm this... wall to espalier them yeah. against yes, is the yeah. only issue. Yeah. Uh, that was a thought I had. Yep. That, uh, uh, But I really uh, the only warmish wall is on our house next door. Door, uh, that faces north and it's got more windows than wall. Okay. So okay, there's so not really enough no. space there to, mm. to sort of train a fig out against yep. the wall, I don't think. Uh, At Raheen, they've got the mespalia just along a, a balcony. Oh, okay. A balcony, so they don't go higher than mm. that balcony. Yeah. Oh well. So you can keep them. Yeah. That's you can do all sorts of interesting things. Yes. Things. And they are just such lovely foliage plants. Apart yeah. from anything else, I do yeah. love those great big sort of yeah. rough leaves. Oh there. gosh, yes. And beautiful mm. tree. So anyhow, I've got to shift my fig somewhere and hopefully give it a. But half how big a crack. is it now? Oh, it's 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 about six or seven feet tall, but right. it's sort of just couple of branches working their way up through yeah. other things oh, in right. the garden. So, uh, And I was hoping it was going to get above the things it's growing near and then maybe and then I'd just go. go crop way up um, there somewhere. But, but, Steve, the other thing you could do is take cuttings of it well, this yeah. time of year because they grow so easily from mm. cuttings. And one of the other things that I think it's Paul Bangage suggests doing with figs is turning them into hedges mm. so that you actually keep them cut as a, mm. low, as a low hedge. So that, <sighs> I think that could be interesting too. Yeah. Oh, well. We'll deal with it somehow or another. But you we'll could grow some new ones, yeah. leave that one where it is. Yes, and, and just and yeah, put start new off one somewhere yeah. else by taking All right, well, And I know how much you home. like bats, and fruit bats love figs. Yeah, but we don't get the fruit bats up at Macedon. I mean, <laughs> with global warming, who knows when we will. We might well you do might. it, of course. But <laughs> at the moment, we just get the little insectivorous bats, which are very cute. Yes, um, they are very cute. Yeah. Except very important. They keep the finding their way into my house. Well, that's all right. They don't do any harm. No, I know, uh, but I've got to get them out again for yeah, them to survive. Yeah, and that's, well, that's the true. problem. Oh, we haven't got a caller in. And I did mention at the beginning of the program, I'd like to mention something about Stanley. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. and I better do that because somebody will have heard me say that and they'll yes. say, but he didn't say anything. About no, no, it, and do then it. I'll be in trouble. When we were up there two weeks ago, um, Stanley. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, tell us where it is. Yeah, so. well, it's up near Beechworth. It's it's five minutes from Beechworth. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you just drive out on the Stanley Road and it takes you five minutes, you're there. It's a very small community, but it's got some really interesting things happening just because it's got a few interesting people living there. And when I was driving into Stanley the other day, I thought. Oh, this is intriguing. They've used Japanese maples underneath the power lines and they were looking stunning and they'll stay small enough to not grow too big. So somebody had obviously thought the tree Mm. species out. And in areas where there weren't power lines, they'd planted a really unusual oak called Quercus phallos, the willow oak, which you don't see around very much. 
And in years to come, when these willow oaks and maples get to full size, they're going to give Stanley a complete, unique character. Mm. So mm. it's not yet mm. more pin oaks that everybody else has planted or mm. whatever. Yep. So somebody had thought it through. And as it turns out, it was the local residents of Stanley, or basically two of them, who are both plant freaks. Uh, mainly Dave McIntyre, who's got a, an amazing arboretum and chestnut orchard in Stanley. Uh, and he raised a whole pile of willow oaks from seed he'd got from Canberra, I think. Um, and so he decided that that would be the perfect tree to plant as a streetscape tree in larger areas. And he obviously selected the maples for the under the power lines things. And so he and Jenny Indian, who are both really keen plants people up in Stanley, have been proactive about what's mm. happening in their town. Mm. And they're people with, with good knowledge so they've done things that are a bit quirky and interesting which is going to add to the the beauty of stanley and as I said give it a completely different character because what's happening in beechworth is quite different to what's happening in stanley and they're right. 10 minutes apart <laughs> uh, and you know of course we were up there in the autumn so the trees were all turning it was just oh, yes. so, so, so glorious so time of place uh, and in it's things that people in small communities if they've got a little bit of knowledge about things they should step in they should take an interest in it because mm. local shires and things will plant the obvious mm. as a general rule. Yep. Um, so they won't do something. Now, the, the Macedon Rangers, some years ago, I got involved uh, in a streetscape um, committee for the Macedon Rangers where we went round and we assessed every town within the ranges and wrote up a list of recommended species of trees for all different jobs within each town that was unique for each town. Mm. Okay. Now, whether the council has really followed our recommendations, I have some doubts, but uh, we had small trees for courtyards, we had, uh, or for courts, we had, you know, larger trees for avenues, we had evergreen native trees for certain plantings and evergreen exotic trees for certain plantings. Uh, so we had a whole list of plants for each of the different towns, and they had to be things that were already surviving well within the towns that they were in with global warming and, mm. and the long drought cycle we'd been through because this was some years ago. So it was sort of getting towards the end of that sort of 12, 14 years of drought we went through. And so we went out to assess things that were still hanging mm. in there and doing mm. their thing. Um, and it was great fun to do. Uh, and I, as I said, I hope the council has actually taken some notice of it. I mean, they adopted our lists, but whether they've actually done anything about them, I don't know. I haven't seen any evidence of any of my tree selections showing up in any of our local towns at this stage. But it was just fascinated me to go into a little place like Stanley. I don't know how many Mm. people live there, but it's certainly a very tiny town. Um, And to see that with the help of a couple of people with knowledge and enthusiasm, how they're creating something that in, you know, 50 or 100 years from now, people are going to be saying, wow, who thought to do that? Mm. And, you know, that's what yeah. I wanted to tell people about because I think it's, it was really mm. – it impressed me so much to think that these people had taken the lead and actually gone out and done it. They hadn't just talked about, oh, yep. God, I wish the council would do something or whatever. Mm. They actually went out and said, these are the trees we're going to plant, we're going to grow them and we're going to put them in and this is going to be our streetscape for Stanley. And mm. I thought that was really fabulous. You see, a lot of people, unless you, they were you, probably wouldn't have recognised that they'd done something extraordinary. They probably so, wouldn't, to, but they but had done look, something it extraordinary. Would different, but, but it will they look wouldn't, different. Wouldn't really know why. No, no. But, but that's so the it's thing. Good. Yeah. It's good that you have identified. Yeah, and I think that's what it should mm. be all about. I mean, you know, Dave and Jenny have now created a a particular character for Stanley that will go on for mm. probably 150 years. And I might add, if anybody's up there, there is one tree in Stanley that everybody should stop and look at uh, just opposite the primary school in a private 
property just opposite, and it's got a sort of a high tin fence, I think, for memory, uh, is the biggest cork oak I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Okay, bigger than the one in Geelong. Oh, yeah. It is yeah. It is massive. The trunk on okay. it is just huge. Oh, I love cork oaks. Yeah, they are a beautiful tree. So there is a really impressive cork oak up there. Mm. And if you're up in the Beechworth area, the other thing that people should do is go for a walk around Mayday Hill, which is the old lunatic asylum and on mm. the hill in, in Beechworth. Mm. Uh, it's open to the public. It's got a hotel in there, and they're doing all sorts of other things with the buildings in there. It was part of La Trobe University for a while, and then the university got rid of it because they didn't need it. Uh, but the trees at Mayday Hill are amazing. Mm. There are huge bunyas, all sorts of weird oaks, unusual maples, dogwoods, uh, liquid ambers, uh, you name it. They're growing there. And Who is behind the plantings, do you know? I don't actually know how Mayday Hill... I mean, it's a very old garden because it was a lunatic asylum way yep. back in the yep. sort of turn of the last century. Um, and so a lot of the trees date back, you know, easily mm. 100 years or more. Mm. But there were some more modern plantings done there perhaps sort of 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, a lot of stuff that was just coming into Australia at that time, things that would have been bought from places like your Mina Rare plants up at the up in the Dandenongs. Uh, there's weeping Kadzura trees and all sorts of things that were much more current mm importations mm. into the country and you can just go in park and have a wander uh, if you go to the george kerford hotel which was is within the grounds of mayday hill uh, they have a tree walk list okay. you can go and get this map and it shows you three different walks you can do mm. and identifies the trees and they're numbered so you can go around and have a look uh, so they've been really curated well yeah well i know dave mcintyre did a lot of the iding and stuff of the trees in the garden right. um, and uh, yeah it's definitely worth a, a visit Okay. Uh, if you're going up there. So mm. not just the Beechwood Bakery, you can do yeah. other things. But there's also Yak and Dander. Another so lovely <coughs> little town. You'd need to go to Yak Oh, well. yeah, yeah. Yes. And there's a tree there that people should visit. If they're in Yak and Dander, go to the cemetery, yeah. which is a beautiful old mm. country cemetery anyway. And on the front fence of the cemetery, almost the only big tree at the Yak and Dander Cemetery, is a huge Canary Island strawberry tree, oh. uh, Butus canariensis. Oh, yeah. It's on the National Tree Register. It is this vast big tree with the base of the trunk looks like molten wax running across the ground, mm. and it's all coppery and bronze and, bur- oh. and just the most beautiful tree. So the Canary Islands... Uh, uh, strawberry tree is growing up in the Yak Cemetery, and it's got to be the champion tree of its type in Australia. Mm. It's just an amazing it, it, thing. We probably should mention that there is National Trust actually does an app of registered trees. They do, yes, and so you, you can, find can them take there. that with you on your phone and mm. be in a town and suddenly think, "Oh, I wonder if there are any interesting trees here," and and it will pinpoint the trees for you. So that's and I'd be really surprised if you can't great. find the two I've mentioned, yeah, the one in Stanley and the, yes, and the one in Yak. Would uh, I'm sure the Arbutus is registered, and I'd yeah. be really surprised if the Cork Oak isn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yes, that's a good idea. That would yeah. give people something extra to do when they're travelling around the countryside. Well, it sounds like it'd be well worth spending a weekend up there. Yeah. Oh, look, well, we only spent two days. Can I just say that Yak also has a terrific community garden? Yeah, it, oh, it's a really good community garden, and they also have um, a. a groups of people who maintain the big tubs of flowers in the main street. So that's not done by council. That's actually mm. done by the local gardening group. Isn't that so, lovely? Yeah. So, you know, I think all of that's – it just shows sort of cooperation and people doing things to to enhance their own communities yeah. instead of expecting it to come down from above. They're doing it themselves, which is, I think, happening more and more. 
and I find very encouraging in this sometimes. Oh, totally. Well it, well, it is. And, I mean, councils, um, to give them their dues, have very limited budgets. Yeah. Uh, and there does seem to be an awful lot of pressure on them to make sure they've got sports fields and swimming pools and, mm. you know, all of the, you know, sporting things that they need to have for our children and, and, and what have you. And to do the home care and the yeah, libraries and all, and that all sort the of other thing. stuff. Uh, and, unfortunately, horticulture often comes a very bad sort of mm. 10th or 12th on the list. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, public parks and botanic gardens and other sundry things in country towns often get a bit of a mm. raw deal so it then is up to the public to step mm. up and deal with these things if they don't it won't happen mm. uh, so they need to have friends groups and uh, and horticultural and garden clubs that uh, that step up and do you know gardening things within the town um, and if you do that yes you'll, you'll make your town unique and interesting and yes you're right yak is gorgeous mm. it's a lovely mm. town and I do love the fact that we abbreviate all that country yes. tests. So you're going to Wang or Yak or you know, yes. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, you can't do much with Beechworth, I find. No, <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, that whole sort of northern Bad part of Victoria is, is just beautiful. And particularly at this time of year. Oh, it's, oh, yes. it's been a good autumn up there. The liquid ambers up around Stanley were just outrageous, mm. just beautiful. Yeah. So, and, of yeah. course, Bright is also known mm. for all its autumn mm. colouring as and well. And beauty and, and yeah, yeah. all of those yeah. yeah, having lived in Mount Beauty for um, nine months yeah. while I was teaching at my yeah. very first school up in the area. Oh, goodness. Yeah, a long time ago. Uh, well, that would have been fun. <laughs> I was actually at Tawonga Primary School and they have they have since won a couple of awards with Victoria's School Garden mm. Awards oh, fantastic. So, for their garden. So not that there was any school garden there when I was teaching. <laughs> no, probably not, yeah. <laughs> it was a tiny little three-teacher school then. It's sort of grown a bit since then. But, mm. um, yeah, there's, there's some good things happening around the whole area, mm. which is great. I want to quickly mention, Stephen, um, Norgate's plant farm oh, is yes. closing down. Yes, Nor- Dennis has moved into a nursing home. Yes, and he's in his 90s. <laughs> oh, if I can be a nurseryman of that stature. Um, and, yes, yeah, so they're getting rid of all of his stock. So That's if right. you want some good cheap tree peonies and perennials and all the sorts of things that Dennis was growing since, I might add, the last war, um, I think he started his nursery just after mm. the Second World War. So mm. not on the site he is now, but um, uh, and he's been a, a, a constant grower of all sorts of plants that sort of died out of popularity and fashion, and he kept them going. Mm. And, mm. you know, all those perennials that people didn't want yep. when we went into the native now pushes. Coming and, back in. Yeah, uh, and, yeah, they are. Ah, they're all coming back they in. Are. And a lot of the things he was growing proved their mettle by being good garden plants for all that mm. time. Mm. And so they're not just a modern hybrid that comes and goes and disappears mm. out of the trade as soon as the next one comes along. He kept a lot of really interesting stuff going. So yeah. if people want to buy his stuff, how yeah. do they deal with it? Well, you have to phone because it's not open. You can't just drive up yeah. to, to the plant farm which I, I'll give out the address in a minute, but um, I think it's his son, is yes, it Dennis's his, son, yeah, yeah. who's um, trying to obviously get rid of all the stock. Um, but you do need to give him a call, uh, and I'll give the number, and he can tell you when he's opening up, and you can go and grab some probably some fantastic bargains. His phone number is 5424-1787. That's 5424-1787. And the address of the actual farm... Uh, but don't go there until you've spoken to the sun, is 17 Blue Creek Road in Newbury. 
Yeah, so it's out in that sort of Trentham Blackwoody area. Yes. So uh, if people want to get a sense of where they'd be mm. going, uh, which is probably a good idea before you ring to know that that's where yeah. you'd have to go to get the plants. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and good on him for trying to do something about getting the plants out into the mm. community instead oh, yes. of just letting them, you know, well, they could have just been, in the ground. Yeah, they could have been just left there and... Yeah. and grassed over or something yeah. in yes, due course. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it would be a good thing if people so, get on to some yeah. of that stuff. Yep, yeah. yep. Very quickly, we're going to go to uh, Beth, who's out in Clayton. Good morning, Beth. Hello. I just want to ask um, why my friend, who's a great gardener, has got a plot full of um, sweet potato leaves just covered, no, no sweet potatoes. Yeah, because they're not living further north. Because what? They're yeah. not living further north. Yeah. Oh. We, we found, we're finding with the slightly warming climate yeah, that, that we, might um, get that we are getting them. I know that um, Megan Backhouse wrote a really good article in The Age a couple of weeks ago about um, Burnley, one of the guys at Burnley, who's growing a whole range of sweet potatoes and actually producing tubers. And he's actually going to come um, in onto 3CR okay. later in the year. Well, that'll ah. be a, a really good one to listen to. So it is possible, and I know they've been doing but, it in the community gardens and producing uh, tubers. Yes, but well, look, this is in good... Uh, Gibson. Yeah, it may just be a bit cold. Too cold. Yeah. So but they, you can eat the leaves. But you can also eat and the leaves. You can eat the leaves. Yes, yeah. I know the chooks love them. Yeah. No, but humans can eat them too. Oh, good. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so soups, much. Soups and stir fries. Yeah, the young leaves. Stir fries. Young the leaves. young leaves. Tips. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Tips. Okay, no. then. Yeah, so all is not wasted. No, no. <laughs> uh, but it is one of those things that we need to... Um, Consider growing mm. with the warming climate. Absolutely. And in fact, the, there's probably a few plants that we've said yeah. in the past, we can't do, it's too mm. cold, you need to be mm. further mm. north, and, and, and times are changing. They are, yeah. Well, if I can grow citrus at Macedon, anything's possible. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, if in doubt, have a go. Well, that's, that's the, the other thing. It doesn't it. cost much. No. Uh, and if you do succeed, you can lord it over everybody. And if you don't succeed, you don't have to tell anyone. <laughs> you know, so you can keep it to yourself. <laughs> exactly, but have a go. Yeah. We have run out of time again. A big thank you to Jan, who's been handling all the phones. Stephen, have a wonderful time in Italy. I know you will. Yep. And we'll be back next week at uh, 7.30. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.